All right, we'll continue praying for all of our missionaries. And so, first and, th- and second, first and second Thessalonians. I always mess up and say Thessalonians. Roger did it today, so that was a relief to me. Uh, getting all these words together, letters. So I decided to do both epistles tonight. I know it was put out one. Uh, I meant to do both. We'll probably do First and Second Timothy together as well. Yeah, and we get to John's epistles, I'll probably do First, Second, and Third John. But we are getting close to the end of Paul's epistles. And once we get over the, the hump of Hebrews, it's just going to fly. And then we'll get to Revelation. We'll do Revelation and probably uh, sort of a survey of eschatology. For those of you that like eschatology, uh, you ought to, Titus chapter 2. Be looking forward to all of it since you're believers. The uh, rapture, the reign of Christ, good stuff. So, uh, and part of the reason of of putting these two epistles together is they were written very close to one another, probably within weeks of each other. And then also about a third of the content is very similar. Of course, in 2 Thessalonians, you have... Uh, greater emphasis on the same things that Paul was talking about in First Thessalonians, and then with some greater for clar- clarification, especially uh, in terms of the day of Christ, uh, the ga- our gathering together to him, things like that of the rapture. So let's uh, quickly get into um, authorship and date, and we'll look at special considerations, doctrinal contributions. So yeah, so uh, you've read ahead, right? So you know that Paul is the author of this epistle. Why is that the case? Paul introduces himself as the author in the first chapter of both letters, uh, the first chapter and verse of both letters. He claims to be the author in 1 Thessalonians 2.18, and then he signs off with his name uh, in 2 Thessalonians 3.17, and he says, basically, uh, this is my uh, fingerprint, if you will, in all my epistles. So there's three reasons there. His name's all over the books. Uh, The theology, the writing style, is very, what we say, Pauline in nature. Also, uh, two of his common companions in ministry, Silvanus, who is Silas, and Timothy, they're uh, with Paul there in Thessalonica. And then um, also from Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 9, mingled with the information in the epistles, we see this familiarity of Paul uh, with the church as, as was very typical with him, this very fatherly, uh, endearing uh, kind of thing with Paul. So that would be all the internal evidence. Uh, as far as external evidence goes, uh, his name is on all of the earliest uh, manuscripts discovered. Uh, the earliest, you know, we say fathers of the church, and I probably throw that term out with not enough explanation. But in the early church, uh, we, we're usually talking about uh, the first, second, and third century when we talk about the early fathers. These are men that were pastors of the churches uh, in the, the Mediterranean world at that time who had the letters of the New Testament, who quoted them, who themselves were writing letters to the various churches. And um, so anyway, they quoted the epistles, these two epistles, as Paul's. And then uh, I think usually it's worth noting that there's uh, the critical scholars that are out there, uh, they're in general agreement that we're talking about Paul's pen, uh, that Paul penned these letters. And so I think that scholarship and good reason, we're going to have to say it's Paul. Uh, The date uh, for uh, these two letters is 
kind of a fun little process to go through. Um, so first of all, Paul indicates in 1 Thessalonians 3 that he wrote to the Thessalonians during his stay in Corinth. So he was in Corinth when he wrote both letters, and his time in Corinth is recorded in um, Acts 17, or I'm sorry, Acts 18. Um, and then in all of this, there's a few timestamps uh, in Acts that correspond with the information that's given in uh, these letters that narrow the date down to quite a bit of precision. So let me give you some of these details. If you're not good at paying attention, it's just, I'm sorry, you just have to take my word for it, okay? So when Paul came to Corinth in Acts 18, uh, he met that famous Jewish couple, Aquila and Priscilla, okay? And they had been forced out of the city of Rome by Emperor Claudius because a group of Jews had rioted in the city. And so Claudius was, they didn't like the Jews anyway, so he just said, get them out of the city. And uh, that happened sometime in 49 AD, okay? So uh, they were there in Corinth sometime, of course, after them being kicked out. Toward the end of Paul's uh, 18-month stay in Corinth, which is recorded in Acts 18.11, a man named uh, Gallio was appointed to the office of proconsul, says that in Acts 18.12. And what we've discovered is that an inscription at Delphi in Greece says that he entered that office at the beginning of 52 AD. So Paul was in Corinth sometime between 49 AD and 52 AD. And when he wrote 1 and 2 Thessalonians, Silas and Timothy were with him at that time, but they were not with him at the beginning. When he first got to Corinth, uh, Titus was probably uh, in Philippi. He was someplace up in Macedonia. Timothy was actually in Thessalonica. He was checking on them. And then they both returned, or both came to Corinth for the first time, reported uh, all that they had uh, learned. And uh, so Paul didn't write Thessalonians immediately when he got to uh, Corinth, but he wrote it probably some uh, months later. Okay. So Paul wrote after 49 AD, before the end of 52 AD, and most scholars then, of course, uh, put the date of the writing between 50 and 51. That's pretty precise when we're talking about a document that's nearly 2,000 years old, when they weren't uh, intentionally trying to date it exactly. So it's kind of fun to take all the evidence and then deduce from that uh, some, of the, some of the facts. So uh, we owe Luke and Paul thanks for all those details. Some special considerations. Now this is kind of uh, just go through a lot of miscellaneous detail here that's all I think interesting. Uh, Thessalonica was a port city on the Aegean Sea uh, on its eastern shore. It was, it was located along the Ignatian Way, uh, or we would say highway, that is in northern Greece today. Uh, they call it the, the mother of Macedonia, and it was kind of the bridge uh, between Rome and the Eastern world, the Orient, we might say. The church consisted of young believers, uh, really due to the fact that Paul was only there. Some scholars say he was there for a couple weeks, uh, Others say that he was there for, at, at the most, a couple months. Okay, so he wasn't there very long. So he was there, he planted the church, 
And then we know from the book of Acts that he was kicked out. They ran him out of town. And so they didn't want Paul in the city, and that's why he sent Timothy back, because they, they needed more discipleship. So, yeah, forced out of the city. But I think also what is interesting is that his brevity there uh, demonstrates the, just the sufficiency of the gospel itself uh, in, in all of its simplicity. You know, to believe in Christ for salvation, to love God and love people is to fulfill God's will. So if you truly believe that Christ is the Savior who died on the cross for our sins, rose again, and then, so that's faith unto salvation, but then there's faith unto, we might say, life in Christ or sanctification, it boils down to loving God and loving people. Amen? And when you read through the letters uh, to these churches, you find out that's what they did in all of its simplicity. And they're one of the few churches that Paul just lavishes commendation on, just lavishes commendation on them. So they were a thriving fellowship. For how young they are, they just showed great maturity. Um, also, uh, there, was, there was a synagogue in Thessalonica, but as we read all of the, 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 the data, data, which is it, by the way? Is there a special way to say it? People always say tomato, tomato, but I've never heard anybody say tomato. Is that a New Jersey thing? Doesn't sound like English to me. Do you know anybody that says tomato? Do you know anybody that says tomato? Oh, from England. Oh, so it's true English. I've never, my, I've never heard my, I just don't remember my English friends saying tomato. Maybe they do. I should just pay attention. But we don't say that here. Okay. So do they say data or data over there? Okay. Whatever. Whatever. When you put all of the information together, uh, we discovered that the church was primarily made up of Gentile converts. Acts 17, uh, the two epistles putting them together. And then also there's this omission of references to the Old Testament. There's really none. And with the instruction passed, or as with the instruction passed to the Philippians, um, where there's almost no Jewish converts, uh, no Jews really hardly at all, except for Lydia and her household, uh, there's no mention to the Thessalonians of, of this discussion about the law. There's no discussion about circumcision, Sabbath, diet, nothing at all. What a relief to Paul. Because wherever there was a larger Jewish influence, Paul was constantly trying to get that off of their mind and get their attention on Christ and the new covenant. So interesting stuff. Uh, One of the unique things uh, about this church is it was a persecuted church. Now, Paul, when he went through Galatia and Cappadocia and uh, Laodicea and all these places, not Laodicea, um, Lyconia, uh, he was persecuted. He was persecuted. Ephesus, wherever he went, he was persecuted. But we don't see a lot of churches as a whole that were persecuted, but Thessalonica was. And oftentimes we see that persecution is related to not just uh, religious persecution, but it's oftentimes they're of a different race and a different religion. Not the case with Thessalonica. These were pagan Gentiles persecuting pagan or Gentile Christians. So Gentiles persecuting Gentiles. Now, the other place where we see something that's similar to that is uh, with the book of Hebrews, where we have Jews persecuting Jews, Jewish Christians. So those are the the two uh, persecuted churches, at least among the epistles. When we get to uh, the book of Revelation and the seven churches, we find, um, I think, two persecuted churches there. So anyway, persecution came to the churches as a whole uh, later on. Um, 
in that first century. Also, another interesting fact is depending on how you date the book of Galatians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians are the first books written by Paul. So when we did the introduction to Galatians, there's uh, what they call the latter date and the former date. Uh, depending on where you believe Galatia is in uh, eastern Turkey. Uh, but not always the case. So anyway, however you date it, uh, the book of Thessalonians, the two books, I either uh, come after Galatians or before. I think they're the first. Um, I think. I'm not sure that that's extremely important. But the theme, when we look at uh, the theme of the epistle, it... It really is the expectation or the anticipation of the believer. And when you think, what really is the great anticipation of the believer on planet Earth? It is the rapture. It is the, the appearing of Christ for his people. Okay? That really is the great expectation. Um, and I think also the second coming when we come with him, that's important as well. And what is fascinating about uh, these books is every chapter in 1st and 2nd Thessalonians minus the last chapter of 2nd Thessalonians, every chapter talks about the coming of Christ, whether it's the rapture or the second coming. Every one of them. That's a lot of talk about our anticipation, isn't it? It's a ton. In 1st Thessalonians, we find it in chapter 1, verse 10, in 2.19, in 3.13, 4.16, and 5.23. If you want those numbers, I can give them to you uh, later. Uh, and then in 2 Thessalonians, there's 1, 9 through 10, and chapter 2, verse 1. There's only three chapters in 2 Thessalonians. Chapter 3 is the only one that doesn't have it. So you think Paul is trying to make a point? Big time. Yep. Um, and it's through this great anticipation of the, the imminent coming of Christ that Paul is trying to comfort them, and he's trying to motivate them, okay, both. Uh, and one of the big things is this using this, the coming of Christ for his church to motivate holiness. And when you look at Paul's idea of holiness, he doesn't think of it strictly in moral terms. So Paul said to Timothy, everyone who desires to be godly, that's holy, will suffer persecution. But when you look at the text in its context, he associates holiness there with sharing the faith. So everybody who desires to be godly, that is in the context of sharing your faith, you are going to get persecuted. If you want to find out if that's true, go share your faith. You will get persecuted, okay? Especially if you do it the way Paul did. If you want to talk about sin and judgment and those kind of the repentance, you are going to get persecuted. So in Thessalonians, this motivating them to holiness is about sharing the faith, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6 through 10, and moral purity, 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 8. Here's an interesting one, work ethic. Paul considered holiness, he put work ethic in the context of holiness, 1 Thessalonians 4, 10 through 11. Uh, in loss, how we deal with the death of loved ones that are believers, okay? Uh, and then, of course, how we handle persecution. In loss, by the way, it's 1 Thessalonians 4, 18, and then persecution is 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 11. So Paul is saying that the imminent return of Christ should be motivating us to be more like Christ every context of living. It's great, huh? Uh, unless work ethic is your problem, that's not great news, but it should be. Uh, let's, let me look at some uh, doctrine here. I know you guys love doctrine. Um, there may be, if, if I understand the chronology of end times events, the eschaton, what we call eschatology, 
um, there is some new theology here. Um, and then if it's not new, it's significantly more clear here in uh, Thessalonians. And that's the doctrine of the rapture, okay? Uh, Jesus, and I would certainly get into some uh, disagreement with people on this issue, but from my understanding of the, the eschatological passages from Jesus, he may have alluded to the rapture. He may have alluded to the rapture, but there were no clear references to it, okay? So what I mean by that is when people were reading the Gospels for the first time uh, or when they heard Jesus say things for the first time, they didn't go, oh, that's the rapture. It's us in hindsight that, you know, we're trying to work out all the, the data and then create this timeline, this chronology of events. Um, but nobody hearing Jesus for the first time or reading the Gospels for the first time without the epistles ever said, that's the harpazo, that's the rapture. So I don't think Jesus talked about the rapture specifically. He may have alluded to it uh, in John 11, maybe, okay? I believe that the doctrine of the rapture was first revealed distinctly uh, from all eschatology when Paul was in Corinth, okay? Uh, there's an interesting connection between 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15 that I think should be pointed out. Um, and of course, I like to be convincing, and I've persuaded some of my rapture friends that only the second coming is talked about in the Gospels. Uh, and now, I'm not, uh, I'm not an evangelist in this regard, but, well, I just like to be right. That's the point. So uh, I want to be humble trying to be right, but um, anyway, uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, you know, 50 through 56, you know, part of this classic passage that comes up uh, memorials and for believers and stuff. Paul talks about what will happen to the believer's body at a particular moment or event, whether we're dead or alive. Whether you're dead or alive, he says this will happen to your body. Uh, it's what is called the f at the first resurrection. Maybe you're not familiar, but there are more than uh, one resurrections, uh, big resurrections in the Bible. Uh, there are little isolated ones, you know, like the, the, the widow's son and, and Jairus' daughter and Lazarus. Those, those aren't what we're talking about, okay? We're talking about big resurrections, lots of people. Um, Paul's talking about what happens to believers at the first resurrection. Uh, the, the, the body of dead believers, they will be raised to life again, Paul says, but with an incorruptible um, spiritual body. So it's kind of a when he describes it as kind of a physical, metaphysical body, um, I'm very excited to find out what that's like. Um, and then at the same time, the body of the living believers will be transformed in the same way. This, no matter how good or bad it is, will become something that is amazing. So that will happen to all believers, dead or alive, but then what? What happens then? Well, in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, Paul addresses the same event, but he includes the discussion about what will happen after that, immediately after our bodies are transformed. In our, in our new bodies, all believers, he says, will be caught up into the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And then he says, and then we will forever be with him. So there's the first resurrection, which is a transformation of the body, dead or living. And then immediately after that, we are caught up into the air, into the clouds, Paul says, to meet the Lord in the air. 
what we call the rapture. The Greek is harpazo. I'm excited for that, both for the new body and to see the Lord and be with him. And then also, uh, you know, there's some interesting language between the two chapters. There's the trumpet sounding, there's the bodies changing, and then there's the, me- the mention of revelation, which is described as being new. Let me read the passages to you. So 1 Corinthians 15, 51, Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, that is, die, but we shall all be changed. So we all shall be changed, that's dead or alive. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we, that is the living, shall be changed. For if we believe that Jesus, oh, I'm sorry, I had a comment I wanted to make. In verse 51, Paul used the word mystery. Mystery, which speaks of something that was previously concealed, but is now being revealed. Okay? It's not something we have, through the ages, been trying to figure out with all the data that has been given to us. No, it's something that was concealed, covered, it's shrouded, and then through revelation, the shroud is, it's taken off, and there it is. Nobody even knew it was there, okay? That's, that's a mystery in the Greek. And what's interesting is that was something that Paul didn't share with the Corinthians when he was with them. It was something he, at least as far as I can tell, or he told them, and they didn't get it, because the Corinthians didn't get a lot of things, okay? But... We know it clearly when he wrote it to them. Now, what I can't explain is why Paul would write about the resurrection and the rapture to the Thessalonians while staying in Corinth, but not sharing that with the Corinthians when he was there. Does that make sense? Or maybe he had and they didn't get it, or he didn't think they were ready for it because it caused problems with the Thessalonians. We'll look at that later. Okay. Some of the, the eschatology created some problems in Thessalonica. So anyway, it seems to me that Paul was in Corinth when Christ revealed to him the doctrine of the rapture, but he only initially shared it with the Thessalonians. When Paul was in Corinth, this is what he wrote to the Thessalonians, Thessalonians. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again... Even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For, these we, for this we say by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first." Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Very similar uh, in, in the, the descriptions there. They're not two different events. They're both referring to what happens at the first resurrection. And then in Thessalonians, he talks about what immediately follows the resurrection, which is the rapture. Now, Paul in Thessalonians, he doesn't use the word mystery, which means new, essentially, okay? Concealed and then revealed. But in chapter four, verse five, he says, for this we say by the word of the Lord. It's a very interesting statement. That's not something he says, okay? He's not talking about the written word of the Lord because that language isn't found anywhere else, okay? About the rapture, nowhere else. And 1 Corinthians 15 was written later, It was written later. So it seems that the word of the Lord here is something recently revealed to Paul 
by the Lord, which I, seems to be the mystery that he mentions in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. As far as I can tell, the revelation of the first resurrection and the rapture are there. Yeah, they're there. Revealed to Paul in Corinth. So that is what I believe the doctrinal contribution is um, in Thess- uh, Thessalonians, First and Second Thessalonians. And, um, you know, we will find out, won't we? We'll find out. You know, the, the discussion of the rapture is always very interesting because the Bible never says, and mind you, I'm not appointing the, the date of the rapture. I'm talking about when the doctrine was revealed, not when the date of it happens. But the doctrine of the rapture has been a debate among many people. Many people don't even believe in the rapture. Uh, I'm not sure what they, they do with Thessalonians all the time. I've heard some doozies. Uh, I don't know what, you know, going up into the clouds and meeting the Lord in the air means, unless it just means what it says. Um, but then there's debates about timing and all this other stuff, whatever. Um, a friend of mine says, we'll settle it in the air. And that is a fact. It'll be settled in the air. And uh, all of the people that push the date of the rapture further into the future will all be very happy if it's beforehand. So anyway, um, yeah, let's move on. Let's talk about the outline. The outline. So we're going to do two outlines, right? So let's do First Thessalonians. Uh, so on the screen, I just have the, the simple breakup of the book, uh, the first three chapters of First Thessalonians. It's all commendation. That's pretty good from Paul, okay? Especially when the Galatians got zero, right? And then uh, four and five is practical exhortation. So in chapter one, Paul commends these young believers for their, their work of faith, their labor of love, their patience and hope. It's all in, in verse three. And then their example and testimony of faith, verse seven through 10. And, and, and when we were in Thessalonians, we talked about this quite a bit, that being a port city, uh, boats coming in and leaving, Okay? And Paul traveling by foot okay, south into you know, Berea and Athens and Corinth, Sincrea and all of that. When Paul got to southern Greece, people were talking about the faith of the Thessalonians. So the ships had beat him to southern Greece and they were talking about how the Thessalonians had turned from idols to the living God. And, and Paul is like, you guys, your faith... And the example that you've given has been spread all over the place. And Paul was floored by all this. He says some, something similar to the Romans, that you know, their faith had become known to, you know, to the Mediterranean world, but he was only in, Thessalonica, in Thessalonica a couple weeks ago, and yet their faith is being spread faster than he can spread it. It's pretty tremendous. So Paul is he's just praising them. In chapter 2, Paul commends them for uh, not entertaining false reports about him and his companions, uh, verse 1 through 12, and for receiving the gospel, not as the word of men, he says, but indeed as the word of God, it's verse 13. Uh, he talks about their godly endurance uh, through the persecution from their own people. Imagine your own people, your own community turning on you. It's verse 14. In chapter 3, they're commended for enduring temptation, verse 1 through 5. Paul says, not hearing from you, not knowing what was going on, he says, I was afraid that the tempter had tempted you and my time there was in vain. But then when Timothy came from Thessalonica, he's like, Paul, they're rocking the house. Okay, you won't believe what's going on in Thessalonica. And then in verse 6, he praises them for their faith and their love. In chapter 4, 
Paul transitions from commending them to exhorting them. Uh, he encourages them to please the Lord by walking in the traditions. Now, when we find that word traditions in, in the epistles, Paul does not mean what the Catholics mean. Uh, tradition there, the, the word means oral teaching. So Paul, when he was there in Thessalonica, everything they got was oral instruction. He goes, so what you heard me and, and Titus and Silas teach while we were there, hold fast to those things. Don't stray from those things. Verse one and two, he does encourage them to be sexually pure. We know that the Greek culture was very promiscuous and even religious in ritual sex. Paul says, stay away from it, verse three through eight. Uh, he says, continue to abound in love for other believers. He says, I don't really need to instruct you guys about this issue. So just abound in it. Just, just let it grow and grow. He says, like uh, Peter, not to meddle in other people's affairs. I love that. Verse 11, leave a quiet life. Stay out of people's business. Work hard also in verse 11. Remember, we talked about work ethic. It's in both letters, by the way. And then to have a good witness to the world, verse 12. And then mingled with this commendation, he provides uh, both instruction and consolation regarding the loss of believing loved ones. So I don't know if these people have died as a result of persecution or natural causes, but some of the believers within these weeks or a few months, they've died. And the people are concerned uh, about that. So he reminds them, of course, that they'll be reunited with them at the first resurrection, followed by the rapture verse 13 through 18. And then in chapter five, Paul encourages them uh, to be spiritually alert and morally ready for the rapture. Verse looking, watching, spiritually alert, morally prepared. He encourages them to submit to their spiritual leadership, verse 12 through 13. And in verse 14 through 20, Paul just unleashes a number of exhortations, very almost proverbial in style. Uh, he warns of... Uh, the unruly, uh, which he defines usually unruly as people that don't work hard, and then to abstain from all forms of evil. But the point through all of that that's woven through there is that God is calling us to all of these things because his son is coming back. And the first thing he's going to do is he's going to judge. He's going to judge. Second Thessalonians. Uh, so uh, he's talked to them in Thessalonica about eschatology. He wrote to them about it in 1 Thessalonians. And then some people, they just don't really know what to do now. So um, there's persecution going on. Uh, there's some who are looking at the persecution and they're having this alarmist reaction to it. And then there's some who are apathetic. And this is funny because uh, in the history of Christianity, people have done both the alarmist thing and the apathetic thing when it comes to the coming of the Lord. And, and so it's, it's interesting. Um, in persecution, uh, chapter one, uh, he says, he's telling them through your persecution, I want you to have great expectation for three things. The coming kingdom, verse four through six, the coming king, verses seven through nine, and then as Norman Geisler says, the king's court, verse 10. So be looking forward to the coming kingdom, the coming king, and then when you are with him, there's going to be worship and praise in the courts of the Lord. Chapter two, Paul addresses the, a spirit of alarm. Um, some of the, the, the people in Thessalonica believe that they missed the rapture, okay? Where Paul says at the beginning of the chapter, 
in chapter 2, it's that time where we're gathered to the Lord himself in the air. They thought they missed that. And now they believe that they were caught in the day of Christ. Now within some time in the day of Christ. Now when we study the day of Christ, the day of the Lord, that's an Old Testament concept. It always has to do with distress, tribulation, trials, trouble. Well, they're being persecuted. So they think that they're in the midst of all that. And Paul is reassuring them that that's not the case. The day of the Lord comes with great apostasy, chapter 2, verse 3. The revealing of the son of perdition, the Antichrist, chapter 2, verse 3. And he will be identified by his power, signs, and lying wonders and deception, verse 9 and 10. So the question is, have we ever seen an Antichrist of that magnitude performs miracles? No, we have not. So he's saying you're not there. You haven't missed the boat, as it were. He encourages them that of this time the believers are delivered, verse 13 through 14. And so therefore what they need to do now currently is just stand in the truth, verses 15 and 17 through 17. In chapter 3, not everyone believed they missed the boat. Others thought that they would just take their ease and wait for it. That is ungodly, according to Paul. Let's just sit back and do nothing. And just wait for it to happen, okay? So Paul, to these apathetic kind of people, he exhorts them to be diligent in prayer, verse 1 and 2, to be separate, that is to be holy, uh, to work hard, verse 8 and 9, to exhort one another, verse 10 through 12, and to admonish one another. So exhortation is more like a, an encouraging command, and admonition is like more disciplinary in nature, very firm. And it's, it's kind of like, you need to do this or else. He's talking about people that don't want to work or people that don't want to abide by the teaching. He says, don't even eat with them. Okay? Make it more serious. Get their attention. It's interesting, the different ways that people respond to eschatology. But when we read Paul and Peter and James, there is this anticipation of the imminent return of Christ. Paul says to the Philippians, uh, let your gentleness be known to all men because the Lord is at hand. Now, if you look up uh, you know, the, the concept of being at hand in Greek literature, you know what it means? It'll happen suddenly. James says the judge stands at the door. What does that mean? He's standing at the door because it's a fun place to hang out? No, it's because he is preparing to enter, Okay. And if you think of it in the, in the context of a courtroom, the judge, what happens just before the judge comes through the door? All rise. Well, we're going to rise in the rapture and the judge will appear. It's this imminent kind of idea. And that imminence of his coming of the rapture should stir us okay, with anticipation. Yeah, stir us. It's the same point that John's making. I'll just read this to you and we'll close. 1 John 2, 28, he says, And now, little children, abide in him, that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. I love that verse. I don't want to be ashamed when Christ comes for me. Now remember, this anticipation was communicated in the first century. Paul is saying this to a first, or John was saying this to a first century audience. The apostles were filled with anticipation. And if they were, we should be. If they felt like they were close, How much closer should we feel? So we all stand before the Lord, whether we die or we're raptured. So it's all about living for God's good pleasure. All right, let's stand up and we'll pray. I guess I went over two minutes. Supposed to be that excited 
before I start teaching. All right, let's pray. Well, Lord Jesus, I, I think it's very sad that, first of all, there's been so much division over uh, end times things. But it's going to happen, and nobody can change it. You, you won't even change it because you've appointed days and times and all of that. And as, as Lord Jesus, as you said in Acts chapter 1, that the Father has put all of these things into his hands. It's his timing. It's his event. It's his thing. And Lord, you've called us to anticipate, to look forward. Paul says grace teaches us to look forward. And uh, so Lord, help us to um, not have just an emotional looking forward, but Lord, something that would transform our lives, our motivation, our conduct, our thinking, our work ethic. Lord, all of those things, the way that we endure life as we look forward when we... So help us, Lord, as your church, as your people, and help this fire that we have to meet with you, to be with you, to spread to other people, that we would exhort one another in this regard. So I just pray that grace would have its perfect work in us, Lord, to that end. And Lord, I thank you for my church family, and I just pray that you'd bless them in Jesus' name. Amen.